If you had to select one word that would most adequately describe the, ad the atmosphere of Christmas, what word would you select? The word that comes to my mind is the word emotional. Perhaps more than at any other time, Christmas stirs our emotions in special ways. The incomparable grandeur of the Christmas story, the tinsel and the lights on the trees, the greetings from friends and cards from loved ones, and the array of Christmas goodies and gifts, the um, kaleidoscope of colors, the uh, excitement dancing in the eyes of children, all of these things combine to make this the most, the most emotional time of the year. I used to, uh, I have seen Harry Reasoner on uh, 60 Minutes. I'm not sure that Harry Reasoner was a Christian, but he must have been to bring this wonderful um, uh, address at Christmas time. A couple of years ago, he uh, delivered this address on 60 Minutes. Listen. The basis for this tremendous annual burst of buying things and gift-giving and parties and near hysteria is a quiet event that Christians believe actually happened a long time ago. You can say that in all societies there has always been a midwinter festival and that many of the trappings of our Christmas are almost violently pagan but you come back to the central fact of that day in the quietness of Christmas morning, the birth of God on earth. It leaves you with only three ways of accepting Christmas. One is cynically, as a time to make money or endorse the making of it or to hope the economy does well. One is graciously, the appropriate attitude for non-Christians in a Christian society who wish that their fellow citizens all the joys to which their beliefs entitle them. And the third, of course, is reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless baby, then it is, the, it is a very important day. It is so revolutionary a thought that it probably could only come from a God who is beyond logic and beyond theology. Almost nobody has seen God and almost nobody has any real idea of what He is like. And the truth is that among, the, the idea, among men the idea of seeing God suddenly standing in a very bright light is not necessarily a completely comfortable and appealing thought. But everybody has seen babies. And most people like them. If God wanted to be loved as well as feared, He moved correctly here. If He wanted to know His people as well as rule them, He moved correctly here. For a baby growing up learns all about people. 
If God wanted to be intimately a part of man, He moved correctly here. For the experience of birth and familyhood is our most intimate and precious experience. So it comes beyond logic. It is, what, it is what Bishop Carl Morgan Block used to call a kind of divine insanity. It is either all falsehood or the truest thing in the world. It either rises above the tawdriness of what we make of Christmas or it is a part of it and completely irrelevant. It is the story of the great innocence of God, the baby, God in the power of man. And it is such a dramatic shot to the heart that if it is not true for Christians, nothing else is. Because this story reaches Christians universally and with profound emotion. So if a Christian is touched only once a year, the touching is still worth it. And maybe on some given Christmas, some final quiet morning, the touch will take. Because the message of Christianity is the Christmas story. If it is false, we are doomed. If it is true, as it must be, it makes everything else in the world all right. I love it. It's the most emotional time of the year. I want you to think with me this morning about some of those emotions. And one of them is wonder. The author of this second chapter wishes to describe this emotion, these emotions that bubble up in the lives of the characters of that first Christmas. And so with quick brush, he paints the picture. Here is a woman giving birth to a baby in a cattle stall, and the heavens are filled with the angels and their noise, and the shepherds are bowing down in absolute amazement as they listen to the announcement of these angels. And in verse 17 he says, And when they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them by the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. No wonder they wondered. For their silent night had been pierced in two by the glorious presence of the living God. No wonder they wondered, for the world of man had been invaded by the Word of God, and all the hope of all the years were in that one fantastic night. And it happened completely different than it was expected. And the, and the dynamic of this moment was this wonderful display of devotion in the lives of some of these people there. For example, the love of Mary and Joseph. Now if you're not careful, you'll miss the dimension of their love for each other. It was the love of an ordinary man 
for an ordinary woman. But the experiences of that first Christmas made incomparable pressure to bear upon their relationship. Well, you see, their marriage had not been consummated when Mary became pregnant. Now, that's not unusual for our day. But for, first, for two pious Hebrews in the first century, it presented an unbelievable challenge to them. Just think of all the confusion, the questions, the misgivings that enveloped both of them, especially Joseph. He wasn't sure of everything, but one thing of which he was absolutely certain, this baby was not his. And it would be the natural thing to do, would be to, to ditch Mary, to put her aside, as the Scripture says, but he loved her. And so he turned his back on the wagging tongues in the community. And he swallowed his pride and he accepted that amazing announcement of the angel. Don't be afraid, Joseph, for that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit and he loved her and that love makes us wonder. And the love of Mary for her son. So when verse 19 says that she pondered these things in her heart, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the of the. Uh, perplexity of this woman from the beginning to the end. She pondered these things, but she didn't understand them. And she must have been disturbed by all the events that surround the life of her son. Before he was ten days old, shepherds came saying they knew of him because of some uh, special messengers of God. Wise men came worshiping him like a king. Two old saints, Anna and Simeon, said they were ready to die, for in the face of her son they saw the hopes and fears of all the years. By the time he was twelve, he was a match for the scholars of Israel. By the time he was thirty, he was one of the most popular figures in the land. At age thirty-three, he was nailed to a cross a thief between thieves, and she was there to witness it as they suspended him between earth and sky, and she watched him die in the scorching heat. And so from beginning to end, from those glorious days of his birth and those bewildering days of his ministry and those crushing moments of his death and that final victory over death, all of it, Mary's love for her son never wavered. And I look at that and I wonder, But the most amazing thing of all is the love of God for us. Greater than a love, the love of a man for his wife, greater than the love of a woman for her son is the love of God for man. And George Beverly Shea puts it in words like this, there's a wonder in sunset and evening, the wonder of sunrise I see, But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loved me. And we can listen to this Christmas story and we can read all these these things and listen to these Christmas carols over and over again and it becomes familiar and it loses its impact. I like the day I stood out in a little valley, the most beautiful place I've ever been, in a peppermint patch. It was a cold, brisk fall morning in Madras, Oregon. And off to the, 
on the horizon was beautiful Mount Hood. It was, a, it was a gorgeous place and a gorgeous morning. And I was talking to the farmer in that peppermint patch, and I said, man, this is a beautiful place. Isn't it gorgeous? And he said, you know, pardon me? And I, I kind of gestured toward Mount Hood. Oh, he said, oh, you're talking about old Mount Hood. I guess we get used to her. And I hope somehow that through the crust of these, of the familiarity of these Christmas words, suddenly there could break through to us the wonder of all of it, that God would love us. And then there is the emotion of love. Now Matthew uh, records something Luke omits. It's the story of the Magi. And these men came bearing gifts to the Lord. A little boy in kindergarten, it almost happened to me this week, and I was giving the Christmas story to our first friends. A little boy in kindergarten was asked to, to, to tell about the Magi, and he said, well, these men, these kings, brought gifts of gold, Frankenstein, and mermaids. Well, he, he, did, he didn't get it exactly right. But he got the spirit of it, it that, that there's something that happens at Christmas time that makes us want to give as an expression of our love more than at any other time of the year. Christmas causes us to feel warm to one another. And it, it evokes in us a kindness in our relationships. You've been reading of the problems they're having with these over an interlock in this uh, uh, section of Arlington where there's so many people going by to see the Christmas lights that they've had gigantic traffic jams. One man's house burned down because he couldn't get a fire truck through there. And this guy was saying, he said, you know, one time while these cars were backed up, somebody just changed the kid's diaper and threw it out in his yard. One night they were sitting at the table eating and somebody came and asked if they could use the telephone. They were parked out there in this traffic jam. And the guy said, you know, that doesn't bother us. Or after all, he said, it's Christmas. I, um, I wonder what ha would happen if that happened on March the 16th to the same guy. There's something happens at Christmas time that just makes us kinder toward one another, more sy sympathetic to other needs. Love is an expression of Christmas. And I suppose you've read of the, of the fraternizing that the troops in World War I did, the Allied troops and the Germans. Christmas Eve, reliable witnesses said, and these soldiers stopped shooting at one another, and they started singing Christmas carols, some in English, some in German. And some of them crawled out of the the trenches and exchanged gifts with one another and they played a soccer game. Christmas has a way of doing that to us. And love, although sometimes it's misunderstood, is nevertheless an inevitable part of the Christmas celebration. I'm glad because if there's anything this world needs, it's a good shot of love and kindness and sympathy. Love may not make the world go around, but it sure does make the ride a lot more fun. And D.L. Moody said that love is the one thing that draws us. And Carl Menninger 
The preeminent psychiatrist said, love is the medicine of this, for this sick world. And so why is Christmas so special? Because it calls from all of us that love that makes life easier to bear. And it's an unconditional love. You can hear the goofiest things at Christmas. I heard a Christian psychologist the other day taking a pot shot at the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'm thinking, man, a guy will do anything to ruin Christmas. That's a sacred, that's sacred. <laughs> Rudolph, this is what he said about it. He said, listen to the words of that song. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer has a very shiny nose. Kids can sing at it. No, not now. And if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. All the other reindeers used to laugh and call him names. They wouldn't let poor Rudolph join in any reindeer games. Then, one foggy Christmas morn, Santa came to say, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Then, how the reindeer loved him. And they shouted out with glee, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, you'll go down to history. Now this Christian psychologist said, isn't it true? Isn't it so? He was really working on this, working on his heart, getting this little guilt. He said, isn't it true that most of us love and accept others only when they are lovely and acceptable? I mean, Rudolph, get the point? Y'all got it up there? Joe, did you get it? <laughs> Rudolph wasn't, he was made fun of until Santa came to say, Rudolph, will your nose? Well, the point is, is that Christmas love is unconditional. Hallelujah. Is that God saw us as we are, and he came anyway. And then there's joy. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. How vividly that song expresses our emotion at Christmas time. I'm not talking about the artificial happiness that the bubbly stuff creates. I'm talking about this deep joy that is rooted in a living, in a relationship with a living Christ. Mary felt that joy. I've alluded to her wonder and her love, but she felt this joy when she understood her part in the plan of God and said, my soul exalts in the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And the angels felt it and they said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Why? Because the one whose birth they announced would be the Savior of the world. And Anna and Simeon experienced it and knew it because of the hope he brought to them in the midst of their problems. And when we think of the significance of what has happened on that special night, it does make us glad. And when we understand that he came all the way from there to here and he invaded life at flesh level, he came to become what we are so that we can become what He is, when we think of that, it brings joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come.
There is one last emotion I think of today, and that's sadness. Now you say, well, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. It's a recognition of the fact that in the midst of all the joy and the celebration for many people, Christmas is not a happy time. Psychologists tell us that Christmas is the most depressing time of the year for some folks. It's not a time of joy. It's what the psychologists call the holiday paradox. There are many reasons why. Some, it's because of the demand of the season, the pressure to buy gifts. Can you imagine what some people must feel when they don't have it to buy what other children have? And the stress that comes in the, in the busy schedules and, and, and this universal expectation of jolliness, you know, got to put on this face. And some are sad by Christmas because they recognize at Christmas time more clearly than at any other time the emptiness that's within them. Another year has passed and nothing's been accomplished. And they say to themselves, this is the last opportunity I'll have to satisfy this hunger and to fill this emptiness. And when the last package is open and the last carol is sung and the last guest has departed, that sense of emptiness is there again. And that hole is unfulfilled. And for some, it's caused by an awareness that the past, will, the present will not, or future will not be exactly like the past again. Some of you have buried loved ones this year. And some of you will be aware graphically and profoundly and eloquently aware that it will never be the same again. And sometimes the realization of the condition of our world brings sadness. It's a tragedy that we celebrate the coming of God to earth and we live as though He never came. It's sad that we celebrate the bread of life and we gorge ourselves on rich food while 10,000 people die daily in this world of starvation. And one half of the world's population will go to bed tonight hungry. It's a sad thing that we celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace and never have our cities been more violent. And it is sad when we magnify the home and all of these commercials describe folks coming home. And we are witnessing one of the most tragic phenomenon in the history of the human race. Streets filled with homeless people. And that's enough to make us sad. And the only way that Christmas can be a time of joy and celebration is when we allow Him 
to be reborn in us and reign in us. And so a mother, a, a teacher finished the little nativity scene and started back to her desk. And a little boy said, Teacher, I have a question. Okay, Jimmy, what's your question? She, he said, Where does Jesus belong? It's a good question. He belongs in your heart and mine. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. O oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. O oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us today. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Could you pray that prayer? Would you pray that prayer? Would you pray that prayer right now? Our Father, we are aware of all the emotions. We've felt them. We've experienced them. We've seen them in the lives of others. But Lord, I pray right now, if there is a heart, there's a person in whose heart Jesus Christ is not present and president, presiding and reigning. That simple prayer of faith that calls on Jesus could be prayed right now. And where there is anger and hostility and brokenness, we'd come to Him who, breaks, who brings all things together, makes all things new. I pray, dear Lord, that as the Magi went back a different way, that we'll all leave today differently than when we came. For I pray in the name of our Lord, Jesu Bambino, Jesus. In a spirit of prayer this morning, I want to ask you to make this decision in your heart. Give Christ the opportunity to come and live and reign in you. You come by invitation, by your acceptance, by your faith. Just pray to receive Him. Turn from your way of life to Him. Maybe you need to come today to place your faith in Christ or to join our church, to recommit yourself to the God who came and who is come.